Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Good stuff. Good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see you in worship this morning. We are continuing our 12-week summer series called Saints and Sinners. In this series, we're looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken. And through their stories, we're seeing how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our sin and personal challenges. Therefore, what God wants uh, uh, from his people is for us to give him our heart and to trust him with our life. And then in his grace and our submission to the Holy Spirit, he blesses us and weaves us into his grand story of redemption. Uh, If you've been with us in this series, you'll recognize some of these names that we've covered already. We've reflected on the stories of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Esther, Elijah, David, Jeremiah, last week Mary Magdalene, and this morning we're looking at our second New Testament character, the Apostle Peter, in a sermon entitled, In Process with God. I hope this message will be encouraging to you this morning. Would you grab your Bible and open it up to the Gospel of Matthew? Mostly we'll be there today, but we will flip around uh, to the Gospels of Luke and John. Let's start with the first appearance of Simon Peter in Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there, but I will have this one on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now notice there in verse 18, Simon called Peter Uh, Jesus will actually give him the name Simon. He will give Simon the name Peter later in Matthew chapter 16, which we're going to look at today. And in John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, we're told that Andrew, the brother of Simon, heard John the Baptist say that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And so he catches up with Jesus and spends the day with him. That's what John tells us. And John says that Andrew then went and told his brother Simon that he thought Jesus was the promised Messiah. So Simon would have had some idea and likely respect for Jesus of Nazareth. But we get more detail on Simon's calling in Luke chapter 5. Would you turn there? Luke chapter 5. Just hold your place in Matthew and turn over to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So Luke gives us more detail. He says, One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him 
to listen to the Word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. you got to wash those nets to take care of them, or they go bad. So stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. And you could almost hear this, I think in a respectful way, but this guy's tired. And so Simon says, Master, uh, we worked hard all night, and we didn't catch a thing. You can imagine just Simon just looking at Jesus, and Jesus isn't budging. And so Simon says, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, O Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, You'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. You notice this fishing for people is a metaphor that speaks of drawing people into the kingdom dragnet. That was the primary way that they fished, not with rod and reel, not with a a bait and a hook for deception (laughs) when you think of evangelism. It's not that kind of thing, but it's a casting of a net to catch the fish that are in the water. And so this metaphor Jesus is using says, you know, this is what you used to do, but if you follow me, this is what I'm going to teach you to do, to catch people, leading people to me, to salvation, leading them to a new way of being human and a new way of living in the kingdom that is coming. So there are a few things that we should notice, I think, about this passage Jesus first asks, as you notice, to borrow Simon's boat. Simon is tired. They've been fishing all night long. Jesus knows this. Uh, And also picture this. Jesus is in the boat. Simon's in the boat. Simon can't go to sleep. (laughs) He's got to stay awake through Jesus' sermon, as some of you should do today. So think about this. He, he borrows Simon's boat, and this is a preview, right, of, of Peter giving his time, his talent, and his treasure, as we say. Giving his time and his talent and the stuff for Jesus' use. You see, that's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus asks us to do things that may not make a lot of sense at first. I mean, I'm sure that didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, Peter doesn't even know how to fish. And they've been fishing all night long. And here comes this holy guy, this rabbi, who preaches a nice sermon. We'll give him that. But wants us to go back out and teach us how to fish? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what Jesus asks them to do. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, but they're being asked to trust Jesus. 
And Simon isn't just amazed. You'll notice in the passage we just read, he's humbled. He's humbled. He's brought low because of the holiness and the power of Jesus, which he then and there senses in the boat with him. It's one of those God moments. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've experienced something like that before. Simon gives up fishing to follow Jesus. This is a huge step of faith, isn't it? I mean, up to this point, fishing was everything to Simon. Think about it. He was born in Bethsaida. We know this. That this is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Galilee was mostly rural. So get this picture. This is seen as a, a, a territory where people are less educated, where there, there's lower income, uh, a lot of the folks in Jerusalem thought of these people in Galilee as less devout. Maybe they didn't go to temple in Jerusalem as much as they should or synagogue as much as they should. And so they certainly weren't expecting a Messiah to come from Galilee. In the Gospels, Simon lives in Capernaum. You can find Capernaum just a little bit ways down from Bethsaida. And Capernaum is a large fishing village, and Jesus is going to make this the hub of his ministry there where Simon lives. Uh, Archaeology will show us that we know a house church started in Peter's home, and it looks as if the centuries after that, they just continued to expand upon it. You can go over to the Middle East today there in Capernaum, and uh, you can see this alien spaceship-looking thing Uh, sitting over the top of the ruins of what was believed to be Simon Peter's house. Simon and Andrew, brothers, mind you, are leaving everything we said, everything that they know to follow Jesus. This is the family business, right? Their father and and his father were fishermen. This is their livelihood. And we also know that Simon was married. We know that because the Gospels tell us He has a mother-in-law whom Jesus will later heal. How many of us want Jesus to heal our mother-in-laws? That's a joke. Just a joke. My mother-in-law is here today. Um, (laughs) Y'all didn't laugh right away on that. You thought I was serious, I guess. But think about it. Simon's married. Can you imagine him going home and telling his wife, about this encounter with Jesus, and oh, by the way, I'm not going to fish anymore. <laughs> I'm going to leave the family business. I'm going to leave my livelihood. I'm going to follow this, this rabbi and journey around with him as his student to the Lord knows where. But that's exactly what he does. If you've seen the, the TV show The Chosen, they explore this a little bit and take a little liberty here to imagine what this must have been like. Uh, for, for Simon to be one of the disciples who are married and yet drops everything to follow Jesus. So Simon isn't just a follower of Jesus, though, is he? He'll become the leader among the disciples. Here's actually a, another shot from the movie The Chosen. You can see Simon up front there with Jesus. Simon Peter is mentioned more than the other disciples uh, over 120 times. And what we get is not just the, uh, a portrait of the disciple uh, and the things that he said or did, but we see specifically his shortcomings. 
And some scholars believe that actually Simon Peter himself may have had a hand in the spreading of the oral stories, because remember they're an oral culture, long before they wrote these things down in the Gospels. And, and, and so Simon would have had a part in telling the stories that certainly would not be flattering to him, <laughs> right? To be honest, to be vulnerable in this way, Simon wants you to know about the hard things that he learned through trial and error with Jesus. We also know that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, another fishing family, were friends of Simon and Andrew, and they were close to Jesus. So you'll see that bubble up in the text that, that uh, James and John and Peter are three disciples who are the closest to Jesus. They're in Jesus' intimate space, right? Jesus had an intimate space. He also had a a small group, his personal space, the 12 disciples, uh, and so forth and so on. But there's several instances where we can see why Simon Peter stands out as the leader. You, you might look at him sometimes and say, the guy's a bumbling idiot, or, or he sure seems to stick his foot in his mouth a lot, or he's always coming up with some bizarre ideas. But you'll notice that Jesus sees something in Peter that he doesn't see in the others. And Jesus just has to work off the rough edges on this guy, even post-resurrection. For example, consider what happens in Matthew chapter 14. Look there with me. Matthew chapter 14, a passage you may be familiar with. I actually preached my first sermon from this passage. And uh, my, my aunt on the flower side of the family, who's a painter, painted this particular scene. Not this exact uh, portrait here. Uh, but, but something very much like it. Look at Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately after this, and this is after the feeding of the 5,000, and it's likely that the disciples still had uh, 12 baskets full of bread and fish sitting between their legs. I want you to think about that when this storm comes. Jesus sends them across the lake in the boat, says, I'll catch up to you later. I'm going to go pray. And Jesus is going to walk. He, he, it sounds as if he's going to walk around the Sea of Galilee. He wants them to sail straight across it. But really what Jesus is going to do, Jesus thinks ahead, he's going to meet them on the water in the storm. So immediately after this, Jesus insisted to get back into the boat. He tells them to cross the other side of the lake. And while he sent the people home. And after sending them home, he went up into the hills to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves about three o'clock in the morning. Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. Now, what's going on here? Well, many Jews of that time thought that the, at the bottom of the sea, and they didn't know how deep the Sea of Galilee was, and Jews didn't particularly like water anyway. We learned about that in the Jonah story, as you'll recall. They weren't a seafaring people. And so the sea for them, even in a, in especially in apocalyptic literature, sort of represented um, chaos and danger and even spiritual evil and spiritual things. So some thought that the bottom of the sea was a portal to the underworld. I mean, you just let your imagination go. And so they, they were thinking along those lines that maybe some dead spirit has come up out of the lake and is now walking on the water to them to come drag them to the place 
of the dead. You know, a lot of people talk about when they're dying, they see their life flash before their eyes. Well, it was kind of like that, but it is, is a picture of what was about to happen to them. Verse 27, Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. How often we hear that in the New Testament from Jesus or angels. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Folks, this is a picture of what Jesus still does today in the lives of believers. Verse 28, Peter called to him. It's Peter who calls to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And you're thinking, what would compel this guy to say such a thing? Why not say, Jesus, if it's really you, come get in the boat with us. But rather, Jesus, if it's really you, call me to come get out on the water with you, to walk on the water with you. Wow. Verse 29, Jesus says, sure, come on out here with me. (laughs) Yes, come. So Peter went over the side of the boat, and he walked on the water toward Jesus. Just imagine this scene. And when he saw the strong wind and the waves, so it seems like it was working for a while. Peter's walking out on the water. He's, he's, he looks, though, at the wind and the waves, and he gets terrified. He begins to sink. And he says, save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, and he said, you have so little faith, he said. Why did you doubt me? I think we can read that sort of in a and maybe a condemning or shaming way, but we shouldn't. I think this is Jesus like a parent trying to teach their child how to swim or ride a bike, and they give up or they let fear overcome them, right? And the parent says, oh, you were so close. You were so close. Why did you give up? Why did you doubt? Why did you start looking at the wind and the waves and take your eyes off me. And then they climbed back into the boat, and the wind stopped. The disciples worshipped him, worshipped him. This is a first in the Gospel of Matthew. And they say, you really are the Son of God. I think we're going to go and see in a couple chapters later that they didn't really fully even understand what they're saying. And how many of us are like that? We don't even fully understand what we are saying when we say we're followers of Jesus. And we embrace the theology of the New Testament. It's something we have to live into. It's something that we're in process in. Then it says after they crossed the lake, they landed. The people recognized Jesus and news spread rapidly about him all over the area. Now the high point of of Simon's faith journey during Jesus' ministry comes a couple chapters later, as I said, Matthew 16. As you're turning there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 16. Let me set the context for you about what we're about to read here. I briefly mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The setting here in Matthew 16 is Caesarea Philippi. Now here's a picture of what we think Caesarea Philippi might have looked like in the first century. This is the furthest north that Jesus goes in Jewish territory, 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It it is Jewish territory, but it's predominantly a non-Jewish area that it's known for its worship of pagan deities. It's a remote place at the base of Mount Hermon, and it's especially known for the grotto of the Greek god 
Pan, Greek god Pan. Pan was the god of nature, the god of flocks and the wild. He had the torso of a man and the hindquarters of a goat. You might think of like a fawn from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's a place of worship that was erected uh, when they worshiped Pan. They, they erected sites of worship, usually in places where there was natural beauty, and you had that here. Here there are springs which come out of this cave to help form the headwaters of the Jordan River which flow down into the Sea of Galilee. They flow out of this cave, out of, down, out of the mountain, down to the Sea of Galilee. And this cave was also thought to be the entrance to the underworld. It was an entrance, it was a portal to the underworld, to Hades, the realm of the dead, and, and the place where King Herod the Great built a temple in 20 B.C., which he dedicated to Caesar Augustus. So I want you to think about what's happening at this particular site and why Jesus would travel 25 miles to the northernmost part of Jewish territory to have happen what happens here. This is a place of pagan worship, even the worship of the emperor. So Jesus takes his disciples here. I imagine they're wondering why he's doing this. And not only was this thought to be the place of, and it was the place of pagan worship, and the worship of Caesar was thought to be the place where angels fell from heaven to earth. This is a hubbub of all kinds of worship activity and spiritual warfare. And this is the place where Jesus takes his disciples for the greatest revelation of himself. Look at Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. Now that you have the context. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So remember, he sent them out on mission to do the things he was doing, to preach the good news, to heal the sick, and to come back and report. And they're all excited. They're telling stories of the ministry they've done. And you can just imagine Jesus' question cuts through the excitement and maybe even the laughter uh, and the power of what God was doing with this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man. Jesus has been using this title for himself. But you need to remember that in Daniel 7, there is this Son of Man figure that was very mysterious to the Jews. They didn't know what to do with this passage. You can just hold your place, flip over to Daniel 7, you can see it. It speaks of the ancient of days, who they understood to be God, and then this human figure sent from the ancient of days, riding on the clouds of heaven, a sign of divinity. So a human being that seems to have divine qualities, this is the designation that Jesus uses to describe himself. And later on, you remember at his mock trial, what does he say? When they ask him if he's the Messiah, he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, what? Coming on the clouds of heaven. Everything Jesus has said and done up to this point uh, doesn't evoke the kind of response that this does in that moment. You remember when the high priest rips his clothes as a sign of blasphemy. When Jesus claims to be the figure in Daniel 7. Back to Matthew 16. Jesus asked the question, who is the Son of Man? They replied, some say John the Baptist. 
right? That he somehow John the Baptist in spirit back from the dead. Some say Elijah the prophet. Others say Jeremiah the prophet. We touched on that a couple weeks ago. Why? When Jesus clears the temple, rebukes Jerusalem, just like he did, like, like the prophet Jeremiah. And then he asked them, okay, but who do you say that I am? I can just imagine, a, you could hear a pin drop. Go silent. And who speaks up? Simon Peter. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I just imagine he got some looks, and then they looked at Jesus. What would Jesus say? Verse 17, we know. He says, You are blessed, Simon son of John. One translation may say Jonah. Jonah and John in, in, in the Greek text are very similar names. Uh, some believe, I'm reading the New Living Translation, some believe that this is Jonah. Uh, earlier, you'll notice just before um, we get to chapter 16, Jesus says the only sign, actually it's in 16, the very first of 16, the only miraculous sign he would give would be the sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? Jonah goes to the depths, right, the underworld, <laughs> The sea in the belly of a well, how many days? Three. He says, the only sign I'm going to give you in the belly of the beast for three days. So some say maybe his, his dad's name was really John, but he says Jonah here is to testify to that Peter is a son of the resurrection. He is a person of faith. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you, you did not learn this from any human being. This isn't your own thoughts. God has revealed this to you. And I say to you that you are Peter. Petros, the word in Greek. A word for rock. Now, there's also another word for stone. Uh, lithos. But that isn't, this word is Petros. Which uh, could be used to describe hard rock. Even a, a, a towering cliff. Now, the, the funny thing is, is right behind them was one. They're surrounded by this rock, and Jesus says, you are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. What does it mean? The church has really debated this for some time. And some, some would say he's speaking of Peter himself. Some would say he's speaking of his confession. The confession is the rock. Some would say on this rock, here on this side of pagan worship, where they worship Pan, where they worship Caesar, on this rock, I'm going to establish my church. In other words, Jesus saying, I have more power than those folks. I am over those folks. And listen to what Jesus says. And it may be a combination of all these that Jesus means. He says, he says I will build my church and the gates of hell, your translation may say. Mine says, the power of hell will not conquer it. The gates of hell will not prevail, I think the King James says. This is an offensive description, not a defensive one. It's an offensive one. The people of God, the church, are on the offensive as if we are attacking the gates of hell. Do you get this? You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I have power over all of it. And now we know this is no coincidence. Jesus didn't want to just go for a 25-mile stroll. He goes to this place to make this point and to hear this confession from Peter. 
And he says to Peter, I will give you the keys. Keys represent authority. I will give you the authority of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. He's saying, I'm giving you the same authority that I have. And he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. In the scholarly world, they call this the messianic secret. That is, Jesus isn't ready for uh, them to reveal who he is. Let the Spirit do that, right? Because as soon as that begins to happen, that's it for Jesus. They're not going to tolerate this idea that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. The religious elite won't. And then, look, look at this. A high point, right? This has got to be the high point of Peter's life. You ever had one of those high point moments? I mean, you're on a mountaintop. What comes next? The valley. You know how many Sundays I, I, I came away from preaching a sermon and was like, man, that had to be one of my best. To go home and the devil's at work. <laughs> right? I get in an argument with my wife or something happens, a loss of some sort, and you hit the valley. Peter's going to experience that right here. Look at verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer. So this is a change of tone. Jesus hasn't talked like this just yet. And remember, this isn't what they're expecting a Messiah would do. Suffer, die, be resurrected. I mean, this just doesn't even compute with these guys. And so he starts to talk about suffering and that he's going to suffer at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, that he'd be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. In verse 22, Peter, who's feeling pretty good about himself, he takes Jesus aside and begins to reprimand the Lord. Have you ever tried to reprimand the Lord? You ever tried to tell God his theology's wrong? You ever tried to tell God, you know, you really shouldn't act that way or think this way? You should be more like me. Oh, I know, none of us want to be quick to admit it, but we've all done it. And here is Peter doing it. He says, heaven forbid, Lord. You know, we are not going to let this happen. This will never happen to you. I'm not going to let it happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and said, Oh, you ready? Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. One translation says, you are a stumbling block to me. Get behind me. Now, did Satan enter Peter? No. Jesus is saying, I believe, you are being used by the devil at this moment. Because this is what God the Father has called me to do. And you don't like it. I get that. But your reprimand of me is submission to the evil one. Wow. Peter goes from this high moment confessing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, to being told that he's acting like the devil. You can imagine what that must have made him feel like in the company of his friends. And Jesus says to his disciples, he takes this moment to teach them. Listen, listen, guys, if any of you want to be my follower, 
you must give up your own way. Stop trying to think like human beings think. Stop viewing things the way the world views things. you got to take up your cross. You say, not just me. It's not just me who's going to the cross. It's not just me who's choosing the way of the cross. I'm calling you to do the same. You see, in verse 25, he says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. If that's all you're concerned about, right, is living like there is no tomorrow, like there is no resurrection on the other side of the cross, then you're going to lose your life. You know, when you live that way, it causes you to do all kinds of silly, crazy, unchristlike things, doesn't it? When you live as if there's no empty tomb on the other side of the cross. But as the people of God, Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to live with this hope. He says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? You see, I think this is what this means here is that Jesus does draw some lines for what we can and can't do as Christians based on this fact. While some people would cross those lines to save their life, we are free to lose our life because we know we will gain it in the end. Death is not the end because of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 26, what do you benefit? If you gain the whole world, lose your soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. I don't think this is just metaphorical. We, we, we believe as Christians this isn't just metaphorical, it's literal. Folks, we have a sin and death problem, and the only person that can fix it is Jesus. And if Jesus isn't coming back, we are doomed. We need Jesus to come back. And let's not give up on this aspect of the gospel because we have a hard time with the supernatural. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. And we believe that he's speaking of his ascension, which the disciples uh, will see. They will see this. Almost a week later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. The text says there in Matthew, it's six days later. And some have debated about what mountain this is on. Uh, I actually used to feel differently, but now when you see this story in its context, it makes sense that Jesus would go from the rock of Peter's confession there at the Grotto of Pan up that same mountain, a, a, a place where they believed the God Pan could transfigure himself. And what does Jesus do? Transfigures himself. Don't miss this. This is the mountain where Jesus is transformed momentarily into his resurrected state. It is the glorification of Jesus on this side of Calvary. And this place and occurrence are, are truly significant. As I said, it was the transfiguration that communicates that Jesus is greater than the pagan gods. And he is greater than the law and the prophets. Remember, Elijah and Moses show up. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. He is greater. Remember what Peter does, though. Before the voice, do you remember what Peter does? You know, Peter knows this is, a, this is quite a, a momentous occasion. 
And he's just so overwhelmed and so excited by the experience and that he's getting to experience. He says, I got an idea. Let's build three tabernacles to memorialize this moment. But this isn't what he should do because he's missing the point. Peter reveals that he doesn't quite understand the significance of the event when he suggests the building of these tabernacles. He doesn't fully understand the nature of his earlier confession. Remember, he's a man in process. Sometimes we confess things that we don't fully understand. And isn't it a little bit like that every time we confess the Apostles' Creed before receiving communion? We'll be baptizing some folks a little bit later, some of them younger. And some might look at that and say, are they too young? Folks, we are always in process. We are always trying to grapple and grasp and understand the mystery of the gospel. Amen? Amen. We're trying to get our minds around the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man and that he was sinless, that he was born of a virgin, that he died on the cross and that somehow we died with him and that somehow he was raised and somehow we will be raised with him. Yes, we understand what this sounds like, but we confess it. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the power of God unto salvation. We understand how it sounds but we're, we're living into it because we are a people in process. And so Jesus tells them once again not to say anything after this experience until he's raised from the dead. Then you remember on Thursday night of Holy Week, Jesus gets up from the table of the Last Supper. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. You remember this? And Jesus, though, insists. And he says... You know, you don't understand what I'm doing. Remember, Jesus has taken on the role of a servant and a slave. This is the Jesus that Peter has confessed as the son of the living God. And, and he's down on his knees washing the dirty feet of all the disciples. And Peter says, uh-uh, not washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, look, once again, Peter, you don't get it. <laughs> once again, you don't understand. But one day you will. One day you will. One day all things will become clear. Again, he's a man in process. Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you won't belong to me. Well, that shuts him up right away. Peter wants to belong to Jesus. And then shortly after this scene in John 13, we're told that Jesus tells his disciples that he will soon be leaving them. They're thinking, oh, no, not that again. Not knowing what Jesus means, Peter says, Lord, just let me come with you. I am ready to die with you, Lord. And Jesus says, die with me. And then Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times before the cock crows. Another low point for Peter. He just, just cuts like a knife into Peter's heart. I, I won't do that. You can just imagine, him saying, I won't do that. No, it can't be. It can't be. And from there, Jesus takes his disciples out and over to the Garden of Gethsemane where he asks them to pray, but they all fall asleep, including Peter the rock. And when the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter jumps up, pulls out a sword, 
and tries to stop the arrest of Jesus by swinging the sword at the head of a temple guard. But he only manages to cut off his ear. You remember this? And then what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes Peter for his actions. And then he grabs that bloody severed ear and he puts it back on the servant of the high priest, Malchus. You know that Jesus is in the business of putting back on the bloody ears, not taking them off. And Peter had to learn that lesson here. Imagine all this is happening so fast. And Peter just wants to save his Lord. He loves his Lord. How many well-intentioned disciples today pick up the swords and are slashing at people's heads with it? Because they love Jesus. But folks, they're misguided, just like Simon Peter. The Lord Jesus doesn't need our swords. He needs our obedient hearts. He needs our obedient hands. He needs our obedient feet. And then immediately after this, you remember the disciples, they flee. Peter flees with them. The next time we see Peter, he's waiting outside. He's waiting outside the palace where the Jewish high council is seeking to condemn Jesus. Just as Jesus said, Peter denies Jesus three times. There's, you know, it sounds like there's meeting around this fire and they're saying, hey, you look familiar. Hey, you sound like one of those Galileans who can hear it in your accent. <laughs> Each time Peter denies Jesus, the last time it says he calls down curses on himself. He calls down curses on himself. Not sure what he said, but it's kind of like, cross my heart and hope to die. I don't know this, Jesus. And then he hears the cock crow. And Peter remembers what Jesus told him. And the text says he went outside and he wept bitterly. Shortly after Jesus is crucified on Good Friday, three Marys and a John are the only disciples at the cross. The rest in hiding for fear of losing their own lives. Fear has overtaken them. And they can only imagine, we can only imagine what Peter and the rest of the disciples must have felt. We know that Judas' betrayal ended with him taking his own life. And Holy Saturday had to be the darkest day of Peter's life. Waking up to this reality of what he had done. All of it just replaying over and over in his head, and that Jesus was dead. And it would be this way a long Holy Saturday until Mary Magdalene comes with the news that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Remember, John chapter 20, we read that. Peter and John, they run to the tomb, and they find it empty. It tells us immediately that the disciple who's unnamed, we believe to be John, the beloved disciple, he believes what happened, indicating that Simon, because of maybe what he's gone through, is a little slower to believe. They find the empty grave clothes there, all nicely folded, left behind, not something you do if you're robbing a grave. 
We learn that Peter is not entirely convinced. And if Jesus was alive, just imagine what Peter would be thinking. What, what would that mean if Jesus was alive? What would it mean on a cosmic level? What would it mean for me, Simon Peter, on a personal level? I denied the Lord, the one in whom I've confessed. And then later that evening, Jesus appears. He appears behind locked doors. He appears in the upper room. And the most significant moment for Peter, though, comes later in John chapter 21. Remember, Jesus makes several resurrection appearances. And one of the last ones here is he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, the disciples, not knowing what else to do, distraught, return to the only thing they know, and that's fishing. And they're out fishing, and Jesus is walking along the shore, and he says, have you caught anything? They're like, no, I've been fishing all night, I hadn't caught anything. He said, try the other side. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> they, they cast the nets on the other side, here come all the fish, a boatload of fish. Peter jumps up out of the boat. He recognizes who it is. He swims to Jesus. And it's there after breakfast that Jesus forgives and restores Peter. You'll call Jesus, ask Peter two times, do you love me? I'm guessing Peter didn't know right away what Jesus was doing until the third time. Three denials. Three questions. Do you love me? And the third time, Peter understands what Jesus is doing. Feeling hurt, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And John tells us that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would die to glorify God. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now that may seem a little depressing to you. But you see, Jesus is saying, you're going to be able to do what you couldn't do before. Which is lay your life down for me. Isn't that what Peter wanted? <laughs> hey, nobody wants to die like this, folks. We know that, but we're talking about Peter's faith. And Jesus says, it, it will happen. You do have this faith in you. And so what, that's what Peter does. In the book of Acts, we see that Peter becomes the rock that Jesus believed him to be. It's after the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter in Acts chapter 2 that we see, and when the Holy Spirit comes, we have a different Peter, folks. Right, Peter preaches a spontaneous sermon. As far as we know, he didn't have any notes stuck in his back pocket to pull out on such occasion. None of them are expecting this to happen the way it happens. He preaches a spontaneous sermon. The text says 3,000 people were saved that day as a result. In Acts 4, Peter and John, they're at the temple one day, and once again, we over and over in the book of Acts, we see what Jesus did, these disciples are doing. They're walking up to the temple gate called Beautiful. There's a man who's begging, he's lame. Peter reaches in and says, oh man, I'm sorry, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. 
And the person gets up and walks. And you see, there's no hesitation. No hesitation how the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and fills him with this faith that he always wanted. He had potential for, but God had to make a reality for this man in process. In Acts 10, we read about Peter having a vision of Gentile inclusion and meeting with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, coming into the house of a Roman, which was considered unclean. What, what God had revealed to Paul, he's now revealing to Peter in his own way. In Acts 15 in Jerusalem Council, we see Peter and Paul's uh, kind of tumultuous relationship at first as Peter was a little bit slower in embracing this Gentile inclusion idea, but he eventually gets there. And later in life, Peter writes two epistles that are added into the New Testament. One for sure we know was written by Peter, and you can read those on your own. I encourage you to do that later this week. And so while Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. He becomes a leader and a pillar in the Jerusalem church. He gives his life for the sake of the gospel and following Jesus until his death. And church tradition does report that Peter died just the way that Jesus told him he would. Jesus said, remember, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. And Peter does so in his own crucifixion during the reign of the evil emperor Nero. The early church fathers tell us that Peter did not feel worthy to die as Jesus did. And so the Romans, you can imagine with sadistic humor, turn Peter upside down and crucify him that way. Again, a sad ending? No. Gruesome death? Yes, to be sure. But it's where the path led this faithful disciple in process with God. And what wasn't possible without the Holy Spirit is possible with the Spirit of Jesus. Sure, Peter wasn't perfect. He was a sinner. But folks, he was also a saint. And Simon Peter is an example of what the Lord can do when we press on in faith, when we stumble forward in Jesus and are sustained by his grace. We'll strive to finish well in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, the rock, the sort of person that the Lord Jesus is building his church and bringing his kingdom. Here's some other lessons real quick that we can see from Peter's story. We see Peter was a blue-collar leader who loved Jesus, right? You don't have to be, you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be educated to be used greatly by God. The Holy Spirit has a way of educating us. That isn't meant to be an anti-intellectual statement, not at all. It's simply to recognize that there is no prerequisite like this to follow Jesus. Amen? We also see that he was humbled by the mistakes that he made so that the Lord could shape his character and deepen his faith. And Peter let the Lord do this for him. He said some hard things, but Peter kept following. Sometimes the Lord will need to say some hard things to you and to me, but we need to keep following. Remember, we're in process. And also we see, despite our sins... Even our denials, our running from our calling, Jesus offers us his mercy and his grace. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful for that in all the kinds of ways that we've denied Jesus, not, not speaking up about the Lord and about our faith when we should? Whatever that looks like, the Lord offers us his mercy and grace. We also see to be a follower of Jesus and a fisher of people, we've got to deny ourselves 
and carry our cross. And that may mean switching jobs. It may mean forfeiting a fortune, right, and making money to do what God has asked you to do. Or it may mean using that money and those resources for the kingdom, amen? Whatever that means and whatever that looks like, listen, the Lord Taylor makes a cross for each of us. And we all have to see that and embrace it and what it means for our life. And of course, lastly, we see Simon Peter is both a saint and a sinner. So lastly, can you see yourself in any of Peter's story? I'm guessing that you can. In some way or another, you would say, you know, I'm a person in process too. And maybe you need to be encouraged by that this morning and see that because, you know, you can't see the forest for all the trees. You feel like you're spinning your wheels and you're not going anywhere, but you're just not seeing the bigger picture as we can see in the reading of Peter's story. You are a person in process. Are you yielding to the Holy Spirit in that or not? Number two, are you allowing God to use your mistakes to humble you, to shape your character, to deepen your faith? Don't resist that. Don't resist the discipline of God, but surrender to it and things will go well with you. And lastly, number three, have you committed to following Jesus and are you being formed for God's gospel mission to others? Maybe you need to recommit yourself to Jesus this morning. Maybe, you know, you've been seeking to save your life, but you are losing your soul. And maybe today you need to turn around and begin to follow Jesus. Or maybe, folks, you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Today is a great day to do it. You're not promised tomorrow, so take advantage of it today. Take advantage of that today. Father, we are so grateful for the life of Simon Peter. Would you encourage us today? Holy Spirit, we know that there's a work that needs to be done in this room right now. Some of that's a work of conviction. Some of that's a a word and a work of comfort. Some of it, Lord, is just a reminder that you've got us, that you're in the boat with us, and that you can You can give us the kind of faith it takes to walk on the water, to keep our eyes on you, and even if need be, lay our life down for you. But Holy Spirit, we know we can't do it without your power. So would you come to us now? Would you fill us? Would you speak to us? For your servants are listening. And all God's people said, amen.